policy session, European policies for inclusive growth. Um, so we've, I think, talked already a lot about the different drivers of, uh, of uh, inequality, of inclusiveness. We've talked about uh, why it actually matters. And now we are talking about you know, what, what we can do about it. And that's, of course, a big question. And I think in the European Union, we always uh, immediately have to think about uh, two, if not three, actors. So one actor is the European Union itself, obviously. But then we have a second actor, which may actually be much more important on many of these issues, which is the nation state. And I mean, not just the nation state, also sub-federal institutions, for example, education policy is in many countries not even done at the nation state level. And then, of course, we have also companies, yeah? and companies also play a role um, in, in inclusiveness. And I think one of the, the, the issues I want to hear from, from my panelists is certainly to what extent uh, actors are equipped to, act with the, uh, to, to deal with the issues we've just outlined, and which actors should do more or less on what dimension. Um, the second, uh, I think, issue is, uh, is of course, um, uh, whether there is then a question whether, whether the EU should become a stronger actor. Yeah? And I think that's um, sort of something one hears in Brussels very often, that um, now it's time to uh, define uh, not only social rights, but you know, really a social pillar uh, at the European level. And of course, I would love to hear a bit more from the European Commission on, on that question. So I think without much further ado, let me uh, quickly introduce uh, our, our panelists. So we start with, with Barbara Kaufmann today. Barbara is a Director for Employment and Social Governance in DG Employment. Um, then uh, we have uh, uh, an academic view, uh, Bea uh, Cantillon, Professor of Social Policy and Director of the Hermann Delake Center for Social Policy at the University of Antwerp and a well-known expert in that area. Then we have uh, Brando uh, Benifei, member of the European uh, Parliament and the Employment and Social Affairs Committee. And last but not least, André Zapier, senior fellow at Bruegel and professor at the Université Libre de Bruxelles. All right, so without much further ado, uh, Barbara, please. Thank you very much, um, and good morning, everybody. Um, so. Thanks for your questions, which add to the questions I already had in mind. And um, so um, let me uh, start by describing a little bit what we have in terms of uh, framework for inclusive uh, growth. And uh, I think it's good to start with the Europe 2020 strategy in the sense that uh, it's not only about smart and sustainable, but also about inclusive uh, growth and we have set ourselves a number of targets and some go right into uh, I think what is about inclusiveness. One is about uh, uh, we have a poverty target uh, or the risk of poverty. A second one is um, the employment target where the for the first one, the aim was to reduce actually people at risk of poverty by 20 million. In fact, we have had an increase in poverty, I have to say, due to the crisis. The second target is uh, the employment target, where the aim is to be at 75%. Uh, we have also here suffered during the crisis. Now, let's say in the last few years, the trend is upwards again. We are above 70%, so there's still some hope we might actually reach that target. And then there's also some, there are also some education targets, 
which are about school dropout rates and about tertiary education linking with the previous discussion. Uh, uh, this is not the end of it because there are also targets about R&D. We have heard how important it is to invest in, in, um, in uh, let's say, capital to also ensure higher productivity of labor. Um, and there's also something about energy policy, but I don't want to dwell on it. But let's say this is the framework, and even though during the crisis a number of those targets have suffered, I think it's still a useful uh, goal towards which we want to move. But then, of course, it is rather broad. These targets are rather broad, and that's why we have the European semester as a delivery tool to try to... Uh, see which country needs to move in what area in order to uh, bring about uh, achievement of those goals. And in the context of the European semester, I think one element that is important um, is that over the past years, we have tried to reinforce the employment and social um, um, component of the European semester. So if you would go through different annual growth surveys, which are normally published in November, or if you go into the country reports that are published nowadays in February for each member state, you will see that nowadays we are looking more closely into the social situation, always keeping in mind that, uh, I mean, inclusiveness is about participation in the labor market and in society, and uh, then also about inequality and um, opportunities, let's say. Now, uh, just to make a few uh, examples, the kind of uh, uh, recommendations we give is, to, for instance, to uh, invite uh, member states to, uh, on the one hand, maybe adjust their labor market uh, protection legislation to make it a bit more flexible, but at the same time, we are also uh, recommending that active labor market policies are reinforced, that uh, skills are improved. For instance, last year we had, out of the 27 member states, uh, Greece didn't get the recommendation, but out of the 27 uh, member states, 20 received recommendations on skills. So here also the idea of uh, improving, you know, the uh, opportunities. And... Uh, and I would also say that, let's say, in terms of inclusion, um, both we are looking at people that are further away from society, some, uh, of, of the labor market, sometimes women, sometimes um, younger, or people with a migrant background. And there are also country-specific recommendations in this context. Maybe last element I wanted to mention where we have recommendations is, for instance, social dialogue. Because for us, it is also extremely important, also against the background of the discussions that we have on inequality, that uh, social partners are associated to policymaking and we're making increasing efforts, not only us to see social partners when we go on mission, but also to encourage member states to, uh, to consult with social partners. So I've talked about the European semester as the annual uh, delivery mechanism. When we look at the implementation of CSRs, depending on how you look at it, some people are more critical, others are less. We say that generally at least some progress has been achieved for about half of the uh, recommendations that we issue. So that's not 
perfect, but at least some progress. When we look at the labor market and social, we see that over time it's about 60%. So with time, some still come around. And then apart from this annual exercise where each member state get, gets country-specific recommendations, the Commission also issues some specific recommendations or proposes to the Council to issue. So we've had one on the youth guarantee, then we have recently had one on long-term unemployment, and now there's been recently a skills initiative launched by the Commission. So just to say besides those annual uh, exercises, we are also focusing on issues in order to concentrate. So um, now um, I, I don't want to say that all is perfect. Um, we have seen, uh, we have probably discussed this morning already, that there are inequalities. We are concerned about uh, the social situation, and this is why we continue to uh, develop in terms of uh, further initiatives, and one of them is the social pillar, uh, where the Commission has launched in March a broad consultation with the idea to screen all the uh, labor market and social um, acquis that we have in the Commission in order to see to what extent these uh, legislative uh, pieces are actually implemented, whether they still make sense against the new uh, you know, forms of work, for instance, and whether there are areas for, where more protection is needed. So in the end, uh, how this will be implemented will be, let's say, multifaceted, and we are still in the consultation stage. So it may have, on the one hand, um, uh, let's say, some benchmarking uh, um, elements where the Commission will continue to recommend, and on, in other areas it may have some legislative uh, proposals in terms of uh, amending things. So, since I have two more minutes, let me just try to say, uh, uh, you know, also respond to maybe the question in terms of um, what we see as sort of uh, uh, whether welfare systems are working be better in some countries or others, looking across the countries. And there uh, we have to say that we have seen that in the crisis some countries did a lot better, that had some uh, systems that were both supporting labor market flexibility, but also providing income support. So uh, in a way, we think that member states, because you asked about actors, can do more to develop comprehensive systems that have both the activation and the protection element. We think that also, let's say, social partners can play a role in terms of um, capacity building, supporting training, apprenticeship, and so on. And, um, well, uh, I think maybe if I have to stop there, of course, there's always a question whether in the context of the future of MU, we might even move uh, further in, in an institutional way. But I think since we, are not yet, we have not yet decided how we would do it, and this is not the key question, I will stop here. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Barbara. Um, perhaps I can ask you one, one follow-up mm -hmm. question. I would love to hear from you a bit more. I mean, who defines really those goals, uh, and and on what 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 is the the rationale who from the what? from who defines the goals, the recommendations that you give mm -hmm. 
in, in the European semester, and we know that implementation uh, is, is quite mixed, and we've had uh, a number uh, uh, where only 25% of recommendations are actually implemented. But, but my question is more on who really defines it, on, based on, on, on what rationale. I mean, uh, let's say if you, um, if you want more um, uh, uh, inclusive labor markets in, uh, in Ireland, um, or let's say in the UK, I mean, um, what is the rationale? I mean, why, why does the European Commission say we need that? Or uh, what, 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 what stands behind it? I mean, is it because of spillovers or what, is it because of a treaty obligation or? Yeah, um, so now the, I think there are two questions. Who defines and uh, on, based on what rationale? But I think I've even seen the paper that you're issuing uh, based on uh, on for today's conference and I think there are, there are of course various rationales why it makes a lot of sense to to have an inclusive uh, labor market and it uh, it ranges from more economic uh, arguments where for instance if uh, there are more people at work and continue to build their skills. We have higher growth and higher well-being. There's also the issue that parts of society should not be, uh, um, let's say, left aside, uh, which even there are some arguments, as we know, in terms of inequality being not positive, good for, uh, for well-being. And then there are also issues where we feel that the EU has a... Has a a vocation to promote uh, social convergence. And when we think about that, we don't only think of, uh, um, let's say, reducing differences between member states, which are, I think, important, especially in a function of MU, but this is not the only reason. I think it's also uh, important to feel that the EU project uh, with all its liberalization of um, the single market and so on, uh, really brings uh, rewards to citizens. Uh, now, maybe who defines? Okay, I think we would say I would say we will then go into each country and see what is the situation there, and then first form an opinion where this country has most of the challenges, and those we discuss then with member states and social partners before issuing a proposal which is further discussed with all member states before it is issued by the council. Yeah. Okay, great. Yes. <coughs> so it so should. I think there should be a PowerPoint. Um. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, well, let uh, me start by saying after uh, the previous speaker that um, I uh, try to explain to my, to my students that if you look very carefully that you can see that, the, 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 that Europe is becoming more social and that we are moving towards a more social Europe. However, and this is the title of um, my presentation, I also think that uh, the EU is in need of a double paradigm shift, and I will try to explain um, uh, why and what I mean with the double paradigm shift. Um, I start with what I call the great disappointment, uh, the great disappointment for my generation. 
Um, my generation um, started 40 years ago studying inequalities and poverty um, um, with the hope that uh, we would make progress. Um, however, if, if we look at what happened before the crisis, and this is important, so I'm looking at the window of opportunity uh, before the crisis, because obviously after the crisis uh, the, the, the picture became uh, very blurred. But before the crisis, these are the good years before the crisis, economic growth, employment growth, and you see flat lines in all countries, in the EU and also in the US, and uh, you will find the same if you look at Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, or whatever. So flat lines, no progress. This is working age poverty, so I'm not looking at uh, pensioners. And this is, obviously you can say, well, that's good, because well, there is this uh, general, general idea of uh, increasing inequalities, increasing poverty. So good, yeah? the line became, um, was flat. Um, however, um, there was a strong growth of employment. There was a growth of incomes. Um, there was the social investment, welfare states adapting to uh, new social, economic, and demographic environment. Um, spending remained high, and I will come back to that uh, later. Um, and um, poverty reduction and um, the fight against income inequalities and inequalities uh, in general was very high on the, on the European agenda. Uh, the Lisbon strategy, it was about um, eradication of poverty. And, uh, Fortunately, the goal became a less bit um, ambitious uh, with the EU 2020 target, but we now uh, already know that we will not um, reach these targets. So, um, how can we explain this poverty standstill at best in most countries? There are some exceptions, uh, but in most countries, no progress at all. Um, and my explanation um, would be that uh, what, what we witness uh, since the 70s is that there has been both an, an increasing um, symbiosis between uh, the market and, and the welfare state, the market, and, the, 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 the market and, and social policies, symbiosis in the meaning uh, the interrelationship, but also that the market became more dependent on the welfare state, that the market became more dependent on social policies on the one hand, but at the same time, um, the, the, the contradictions between the market and social policies and contradictions between economic logic and social logic um, also uh, increased. And that is the reason why, although welfare states uh, started to work harder they started to, to work hard, and I will, I will uh, show you um, uh, spending trends uh, immediately. Welfare states started to work harder, so there was no retrenchment. Welfare states started to work harder, but they became less performant um, for the flourishing, the lives of the most vulnerable. So increasing symbiosis and increasing contradictions. This is uh, the basic idea. Um, and so, in a, in a sense, the, the welfare state falling apart in a symbiotic hemisphere where the market and, 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 and social policies, um, they find each other. And this is the hemisphere where uh, the inclusive growth, the concept of inclusive growth is, is, is perfe perfectly fitted in this 
symbiotic hemisphere. However, uh, include, the concept of inclusive growth is much more difficult to, 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 to implement and to, 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 to think about um, in, 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 in the contradictory uh, hemisphere of, of, of the welfare state. So this is the claim. Um, welfare state in support of, of, of the market. This is, this is very old. This is, has been um, the case from the beginning. Uh, it was Keynes um, who, um, who um, a, a liberal, the liberal Keynes, who, who um, um, uh, argued that we, the, the, the market needed um, the, the welfare state and the state, uh, preventing strikes. Um, but in, 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 the new, in the new economy, it's not only preventing strikes, but it's also preparing people to the labor market, adapting them to the market, investing in their productive capacities. Um, so uh, much more, um, the market becoming much more dependent uh, from um, the, the welfare state. One example, if we think about childcare, of course, childcare. We, we women, we need childcare um, in order to, um, to 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 be able to to participate on the labour market. But if we think it in another way, starting from the market, from the labour market, well, it's the market who is in need of childcare because the market needs high-educated women on the labour market working full time. Um, so this is the idea of symbiosis, and, and this is, fits perfectly well with this idea of, of inclusive growth. Um, however, there is a second hemisphere in, 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 in the welfare state um, where there are tensions uh, between the social and the economic logic. Um, this is the welfare state as, as a moral uh, economy forced by harsh social and political conflict, uh, repairing market damages, redistribution of the, 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 the benefits of growth um, and protecting against social risk, unemployment benefits as uh, a major example. So here there are contradictions and then it's difficult to think in terms of inclusive growth. Um, then we should, we should start to think about a paradigm shift and I will come back to that. Uh, later. Growing symbiosis, and I will go very quickly, these are spending trends. Um, in many countries, all the EU countries, and I also added to the US, Canada, and Australia, and as, as you see, there has been, and this is without um, health and without pensions, so active age spending, and so you see it, and it rather increases even in, in the good years with, with very strong employment growth. So this, this, this points to the fact that, that the welfare states in all these countries, they reacted to some structural changes of the market, um, and they started to work harder, uh, investing in childcare, investing in, in, um, in, in education, uh, investing in active labor market policies, investing in activations, etc., etc. This is what we observe. Um, and well, I, I skip this because... I have only five minutes, so uh, this is just the, the graph showing that there was a shift towards this new kind, the new spending, social, well, social investment spending. Okay. Um, so growing uh, symbiosis, but at the same time, 
uh, growing tensions at the bottom. And this, has, um, this is related to uh, what we discussed in the previous session. This is related, related to the redundancy of low-skilled workers uh, with um, employment rates among low-skilled workers no higher than 50% in our country for 40 years. Um, so we have, a high, we have full employment of a high school within the high skilled segment of the population, full employment, structurally full employment, even in countries like Belgium with relatively high employment rates, we have full employment, uh, high skilled um, uh, workers um, combined with uh, a very low employment rates among low skilled workers in Belgium, 40%. 40% for 40 years, 40% and this is decreasing. And this is related to job polarization. Uh, this is mentioned in, 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 in uh, your report. I think this is very important in order to explain, to understand what, what is happening. And so as a consequence, and this I quote uh, Tony Atkinson, as a consequence, uh, welfare states are faced um, with a dilemma or a trilemma, I would say a trilemma. Either unskilled workers become unemployed or they see their real pay fall. Um, this is a dilemma, but in fact it's a trilemma because the welfare state can, 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 can try to... to, to, to to, um, to, 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 to respond to this, to this, to this uh, trilemma just by working harder, um, by um, sustaining jobs, by subsidizing jobs. And this is, in fact, what we are doing. Tax credits, this is subsidy to low-skilled jobs. Uh, and all EU countries, we, you, all welfare states are doing this. We are subsidizing jobs. So this is welfare state. Starting working too hard, starting working harder, and welfare state trying to to to, to sustain adequate incomes, um, but uh, and this is also what we we observe. Tax credits is again it's it's. Uh, it's, it's helping, um, um, or it's increasing um, low uh, wages. Um, and also the welfare state should um, help um, the, the, the income sustain the incomes of jobless households, but this is not in fact what we observe. And so, and why is that? Because there are the tensions between the market and, 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 and the welfare state have become very strong. Um, so the welfare state, um, it is easy um, to, to sustain uh, the incomes of low-skilled workers. It is, well, easy, it is expensive. It's very expensive. Um, it is expensive, but it's possible to sustain, um, the, the, or to subsidize low-skilled jobs, but to, 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 to to um, uh, raise the social floor for those who are not, um, who, for those who are not um, needed by the market. And this is essentially what is happening. For those who are not needed by the market, this has become very difficult. And this is, this is I think, the big, uh, the big question for the future. And I don't think that the concept of, of, of social inclusion, uh, that, this com that this concept is, is strong enough in order to, 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 um, to um, overcome um, this, um, uh, this tension. Uh, I have a lot of two minutes. One minute, okay. I'll skip this, I'll skip this. <laughs> I'll skip just, I'll skip everything. 
um, just net income, minimum wage income pack. This is Lompang family, all EU countries. And as you see, net minimum wage, there's income pack taking into account um, child benefit, uh, tax credits, whatever. Um, and as you see, in most EU countries, um, the net minimum wage of a full-time working, low mother family, low skilled, is below uh, the EU poverty threshold. And obviously, this is um, most of the case for um, jobless uh, households. Um, and as a consequence, um, poverty among work-poor households, poverty among low-skilled households has been on the increase everywhere in all countries for many decades. Um, and this is my conclusion. Um, I think that we should um, uh, strive for a double paradigm shift uh, first of all, we should go beyond inclusive growth. That means not only um, the focus that we have now in the EU and beyond the EU on, on social investment, so the idea to invest in people, uh, obviously this is very important, but we should go um, beyond um, by increased welfare state efforts in order to help those who have become redundant for the market. Um, and this means either increasing the volume of the welfare state or increase the progressivity of the welfare state. And in most countries, um, it is, so for my country, for, where social spending levels are very high, um, we should strive for uh, an increase of the progressivity of, uh, the, of, of social spending and of taxes. Um, and secondly, beyond targetology. Uh, I think this is, this is really uh, important. Uh, we, we have targets, we have outcome indicators, um, and this is, I think, very important. However, it doesn't help. And why is that? Well, because it's, it is too easy to, to set targets if you do not say how you should treat these targets which kind of policy packages are needed in order to, 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 to move towards these, these targets. And so that is the reason why I think that the outcome indicators, which are very important and which were implemented at the beginning of the Lisbon strategy, uh, and which are used now also in the semester, and I think we did, this is really an important progress, um, but we should, um, we should uh, add um, policy indicators, uh, indicators uh, that um, inform the Commission um, about the, the policies that are put in place uh, right. and, and uh, in, well, in the first place policies uh, addressed to those who fall beyond um, the, 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 the welfare states, um, the okay. European welfare states. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Bea. So, uh, indeed, uh, two big issues. One issue is, um, you know, how do we help those that uh, uh, do not manage to, ma uh, to actually earn a market income in the markets, um, uh, so in a sense that are redundant uh, uh, from a market point of view. And, you know, what is the right approach to this? Is it enough to just set targets? And so, per perhaps let me let me turn to, to Brando uh, from the European Parliament to hear a bit. So we have a, an approach which is very much based on targets, and we've heard also Barbara talk about, about this, but we have very few instruments at the European level. Uh, how do we resolve that mismatch? Do we actually create uh, the European welfare, super welfare state, or 
but perhaps you want to go in a different direction, so please. Um, so, yeah, indeed, this is probably uh, one of the crucial points when we discuss the inclusive growth in the sense how, how we divide the, the work between the different uh, institutional uh, levels. I will say something about this, but first of all, I want to say that I'm honored to be with such a distinguished panel of uh, experts here uh, at Bruegel, and I hope that uh, after two uh, different, but both inspiring and interesting um, interventions. Also, my uh, one, mine would, could be of, of some uh, interest. I will try to focus on some more uh, specifically pol uh, political uh, issues behind what has been discussed. First of all, I have to honestly challenge the uh, role of the EU 2020 targets, because um, I agree that they are an instrument that are useful to maintain a, a movement, as was uh, also mentioned by, by uh, our first speaker. But um, I'm also worried if the momentum is not enough that they turn around from a political point of view, in the sense that we have a huge lack of trust uh, by people on, uh, against the institutions in general and the European institutions uh, specifically in this moment. And so we risk uh, a lot if we put targets that are unattainable because we have uh, not the instruments, as it was said, to attain them. <laughs> uh, we uh, appear as institutions in front of the people as uh, a, a very uh, useless uh, uh, discourse because we uh, indicate goals that are not reached and in some cases considering some countries not even, not even closely uh, reached. So I think this is, uh, the EU 2020 uh, targets clearly show us how uh, not enough uh, we have uh, instruments at the moment that can really attain um, uh, convergence. Uh, it's clear that this very different path towards them, that the very, uh, the, the different member states have been experiencing the different uh, levels that they reached uh, show that at the moment European Union with the present institutional uh, system and the tools that we have is not able to attain enough uh, convergence uh, also on a social, on a social uh, perspective. Uh, otherwise the situation in terms of the indicators would be different. Uh, so I must say that, um, so as a general point, uh, even if it's not a, 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 the topic of today, that I really uh, always read with interest uh, also what Bruegel writes about this, but not only Bruegel, also many other uh, think tanks uh, about the need for the completing of the EMU, because I think that the EMU as it is now is uh, unable to um, uh, push the, the necessary convergence that is crucial to have uh, inclusive uh, growth. But if we uh, look, uh, uh, it's interesting to look at the speeches of, uh, in my opinion, of the president of the European Commission, Juncker, to see the way where we are going. Because we can see that on, 
I can say my also from from my direct experience in the in the plenary of the parliament. Uh, he, the, the president started in 2014 uh, pushing for a, a triple social A uh, reform agenda, but uh, um, quite uh, not putting uh, uh, any pressure on the um, modification of the stability and growth pact. Then at the beginning of 2015, this, the, the, the first one was the speech to accept the nomination in front of the parliament. Then in 2015, at the beginning of the, at the end of the Italian semester of the presidency, then you have a speech where you see the need for the flexibility. Um, there is the communication on flexibility from the commission. Now that the existential crisis of the European Union is at a, and a further stage, in my, in my opinion, but also the gravity of the speech also, the State of the Union of, of Juncker was quite clear in this sense. You see that he says that we need to implement the Stability and Growth Pact with common sense, since it became a doctrine for many and even a dogma for some. So I'm just uh, trying to imply that in, uh, in the sense of the rules that were set also, at, we can say, the Maastricht uh, uh, architecture, there is uh, also from the, 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 the political leadership of the, of, the, of the Commission some change in the approach. So there is, it's not a taboo anymore to discuss openly about uh, um, rediscussing the fiscal uh, rules to uh, be able to have uh, the space to attain social objectives. And probably the first thing that is already, in my opinion, in fact, uh, not working anymore, even if not formally changed, is the fiscal compact. To be honest, what has been given to some European countries in the last year is in fact already the complete uh, elimination of the fiscal compact, but uh, this is at least my perception of that. So I think there must be some more honesty in the sense of what has been happening and try to re-put the debate also on a more institutional rules term and not just a political bargaining because the rules are not able to stay in place. At least this is the impression I have from a political point of view. But I must say that the five presidents report, if I touch briefly a few more points, the, the five presidents report uh, um, outlined an interesting uh, um, uh, path that could be also a good compromise, in my opinion, between different needs and different uh, expectations, different priorities from, from uh, uh, the uh, member states, which have different uh, economic situations and uh, obviously different uh, uh, needs. Um, but the timing is very long and uh, things are not moving. We are stuck in the sense res in the respect of, the, of what has been proposed in there. I myself, I am a very, uh, talking about some instruments, I'm a very uh, strong supporter, for example, of the proposal coming from the Italian finance minister Paduan on the unemployment benefit scheme. I think it's something that has to be uh, done uh, at uh, the Eurozone um, uh, level, and I think it must be put in the context also of the other things, of the uh, um, competitiveness uh, councils, the fiscal uh, also uh, stronger uh, controls on the budgets. I think we can advance 
uh, a proper compromise. Uh, otherwise, by staying as we are now, I don't see, to be very honest from uh, a parliament's point of view, a real future, both from the, for the European Union and the EMU. If we stay as we are now, I don't see um, a real space for, uh, for progressing. So I think it's important that we have been uh, working also as parliament on the European uh, pillar of social rights, as was already uh, mentioned. There is a draft report, uh, I will conclude on this point, uh, the, uh, published by the by a colleague from my group, uh, Maria Joao uh, Rodriguez, that outlines uh, some, I would say, uh, very uh, sensible uh, points. Uh, it outlines the need for uh, a directive on fair working conditions for all workers. You know the big fight around the uh, posting uh, happening, if you follow the, the, the issue. Um, uh, a ban on unpaid uh, uh, internships in, uh, in, uh, in some conditions, a ban on zero-hour contracts, uh, the ch a, a guarantee, not just the youth guarantee, which was mentioned and it's under discussion for refinancing, but also a child uh, guarantee, and in general strengthening all the instruments to um, to enhance the uh, structures for job search, education and training in Europe, which is still one of the big problems. Dealing with the youth guarantee, and I conclude on this, uh, on this uh, um, point, uh, something I've been following very much, starting from the increase of the pre-financing, now the discussion on the refinancing in the MFF revision, uh, the need to invest in, in, in uh, structures, in, in uh, state and private structures that can implement these programs is crucial. Because, as I said at the beginning, there is, uh, and probably this is, not, uh, is, is good like it is, and it must not be changed uh, fundamentally, there is a lot of subsidiarity when we talk about this. And so the European Union uh, cannot uh, uh, solve uh, this um, I mean, uh, uh, confront these issues by itself, but it needs a system that can react to its uh, um, instruments, the, the uh, country-specific recommendations, and also uh, the funds. The big uh, discussion now, obviously, is the MFF uh, uh, revision. The parliament has a strong power on the budget that didn't have in the past. So I think we will have to play our role so that we can boost uh, inclusive growth with uh, uh, some of the things I've been saying and in general with uh, a rethinking of the social objectives of the European Union so that we can be more credible. As I said, right. I see okay. the risk of not being credible when we put targets and we don't have the instruments to reach them. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Brando. So I, I think we've heard um, three um, different but also complementary uh, uh, presentations uh, in this panel. Um, and uh, I leave it to, uh, to the wisdom of my, my colleague André to uh, sort of be the last speaker and put the puzzle together. Thank you for the high expectations. Uh, I don't know that I, um, that I can uh, meet it, but I will, I will try, actually. So I, uh, I, I do think that indeed uh, there are, in, in the discussion that we had today, and of which we heard some echoes on this panel, I think there are two separate developments that are nonetheless related to one another that needs to be considered. 
one kind of development, I would call them external development from a viewpoint of the EU, are the technological changes and globalization. Okay? Fundamental changes, paradigm changes, um, that have implications, I would say, mainly given the organization of, of Europe for national uh, welfare state models. The modernization of welfare state models uh, to take into account this huge uh, shifts taking place, okay? And that, is that are affecting uh, all EU member states, that are affecting all countries of the world, in a sense. It's, it's, those are issues, that's why I call them external. They're external to the EU, they're, they're global challenges, both the globalization and the digitization, and we have heard much uh, discussion. But I would say that those, uh, in terms of the EU, the real implication is how to modernize, and with all the implication of you know, modernization, how to modernize the national welfare states, and then what, can, what is the EU role in, into this modernization? And there I'll come back to uh, the, the, the issue of the targets and the instruments. Okay? But this is one dimension. But then there is a, a, a second issue, which I would call internal. And I think there are two internal developments to the EU that have been underappreciated in terms of their implication for inclusive, inclusiveness, for the working of the welfare states in delivering what they used to, to deliver. Okay. It's a separate problem then than the first one, but I do think that nonetheless they are not entirely disconnected, and certainly in the mind of citizens doesn't really matter. Okay, no. What are those two developments, those two internal developments? They've been, they've been mentioned. One is the enlargement of the EU. Uh, we were EU of uh, six, the nine, um, fairly um, homogeneous countries in terms of welfare in terms of uh, social protection, in terms of wage levels, in terms of productivity. And then the EU in the 1980s started to change uh, with a north-south, Greece, Portugal, Spain. Uh, and we were then already in the 80s also in an environment that was a less favorable environment. Uh, growth uh, started to be much lower. Unemployment rates, you know, we have high unemployment rates today. If to go back to the early 80s, for people like me, remember the early 80s, eurosclerosis, right? The term eurosclerosis, what was it? We had unemployment in the EU above 10%. That was just before the launch of the single market, okay? So there were a number of problems and already the things started to, 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 to derail. And then now, obviously, we had in the 2000s the enlargement to uh, Central and Eastern Europe, that in a sense brought much greater heterogeneity to the EU than ever before. So there was an increase of heterogeneity in the 80s, but then in the 2000s, much bigger, and also in terms of employment and social, social models. The other issue is obviously monetary union. So I would say that those two developments, the enlargement of the EU to a, a group of countries with 
much bigger uh, wage differential, different social uh, protection uh, systems in part, and the monetary union that itself had requirements were underappreciated of what it meant for some of the reforms of the uh, both national welfare state, but also for the need to do something at the, at the EU level. Now, before I come to conclude and I develop a bit those two points, I would say those are serious challenges. If it were only one, it would be serious challenge. If it was only globalization and, and technological change, it would be a very, very serious challenge for the reasons that have been discussed. But if you add to that the other kind of challenges, that is of the EU, this incompleteness of the EU, and what kind of an EU confronted with many countries being part of the, of the, of the currency union, and what, what does it imply in terms of labor market into, into uh, social systems and the enlargement, then I think you get into a very, very serious issue. So it's, but I think one needs to think of both of them. Because there is interrelationship and both, when they are not working well, those social models, citizens, it you know, doesn't matter, it's the EU. Whether it's member states or the EU, I mean, all of this obviously for citizens is the same thing and, and, and rightly so. Now, a few, a few words uh, on each of those two levels. At the member state level, I, I'm, I'm a strong uh, believer that we do need in Europe in all of our member states, something like a flexi-security kind of models. We need to have greater flexibility and greater security. Not many countries have managed to do it. Uh, we know uh, Scandinavian countries have, with differences, have managed to do that. In other countries, unfortunately, some of the reforms, they've been too much of one or too much of the other. They've not been the right balance, and therefore, there's been a lot of political uh, clashes, and we are not making much progress. We are not making much progress in, in many, many countries, and that's a huge political problem. What can the EU do? Um, uh, is the EU 2020 targets up to the job? The answer is no. Uh, is the European semester up to the job? The answer is no. I mean, let's be frank about it. Uh, not talking of the quality of the people involved and uh, Barbara and you know, high quality people, sure. But the instruments are not up to the task. Basically, uh, we are doing something like what the OECD would do. No, but this is not the EU. We are the EU, <laughs> we are not the OECD. The OECD is a fantastic think tank, but without instruments. The, precisely, this is the issue. The OECD makes an analysis, by the way, that I find often superior to what the Commission can do, because precisely it's not political. The EU says, no, we are a political body. Fine, you're a political body, then deliver with some instruments. It can't just be enough to say, I'm setting some targets and you know, I'm making recommendations. You know, yes, this is what OECD does, and very, very well. But, okay, then each country takes it, that doesn't take it, no. If you are together in a family, and especially if you have those, on top of that, many of the countries are belonging to the monetary union, and we are all belonging to the single market and to this wider single market with enlargement, then you have to, uh, you have to act, not simply make recommendations. So there I, I, I share the view that that was put forward. I'm tremendously, and I've been, I mean, this is not new, I've been for the last 20 years, uh, worried about that, that we are talking social policy at the European level, raising expectation, but not delivering. And then citizens are rightly angry about that. So 
we have to do one of two things. Either we lower expectation and say, you know, there's, there's uh, not much and you know, let's not talk much social because we are not delivering or you have to start delivering. It's one or the other. But continuing on this path, I think it's suicidal. It's suicidal from a political viewpoint. So we have to make a choice. It's a difficult one, but we have to make a choice. But I think the flexi security is what we need to do. If we are serious about this and we, we need this kind of thing, uh, and if we think that the EU can do something about this, then we need to, to use some serious instruments, whether it's budgetary instruments, whether it's, I'm not talking of sanctions. Sanctions, let's forget, we will never apply any sanctions, neither for the stability pact, for anything else. I mean, let's face reality. So sanctions is not, we need, we need some kind of carrots, okay? Now, uh, the other issue is about the, e, the, the EU, about the EU, about the EU level. I do think that there is a, a trilemma, uh, a, a different trilemma that the one that, uh, that Bea had put forward. Um, and my trilemma is in a sense not unrelated to the original trilemma, the macro uh, trilemma uh, that was discussed in, at the time of the monetary union. I think that the single market, and today's single market with 27 or 28 countries, uh, but with this heterogeneity that discussed, and also with monetary union. So if you look at what has happened, the integration of the EU, I think that together with national welfare state that are different, um, and in some respect not compatible with one another, and the wish to have inclusive growth, or put it, you know, uh, high social protection, those three are not compatible with one another. Uh, something there is to, 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 to give in. Now for some, um, what it, what's happening, I mean, on, let's say, I would say on the, on the, on the left side, uh, one hears a lot of uh, uh, accusation of social dumping. What the model is doing at the moment Okay, we have those different models, uh, we have integration, uh, but what we are losing is in the inclusiveness or the social protection, there is social dumping. The system, both the monetary union and the uh, single market are creating social dumping. It's unbearable, that's, that's one view. Uh, another view uh, coming from another side is that uh, one is trying to do at the EU level some degree of harmonization which is unacceptable because, you know, uh, maybe this harmonization is lowering uh, levels that we already have. And that's a fear, for instance, of some of the Scandinavian countries, that whatever harmonization you would do, it would be lower than what we have at the moment. So we have, I think, this, this trilemma uh, that needs to, to be solved. So to conclude, I would say that uh, we do need to make reform of national welfare states. We do need, I think, to bring a layer, an EU layer, but the two layers not only need to be changed, but they need to be compatible with one another. And I think that is really uh, uh, an important challenge. There's no point doing fiddling at, 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 at one level without consistently doing it on, on, the, uh, on the other. So yes, reform of uh, national levels, but I think there's also an agenda uh, at, the, uh, at the EU level. Let me stop here. Thank you very much, André. Um, perhaps let me just add one or two considerations also from, uh, from our report where we, where we discussed this issue. And I have to say, 
uh, I think we, we start from a very a very comparable intellectual framework, uh, as, as you have sketched it, André. But uh, I guess where, where I fall on all of this is, is really we need the reform of the national one, and that's the sort of 98% of the job or 95% of the job. And I think I'm also on the side uh, of those saying, you know, setting goals um, that you cannot achieve is the worst thing we can do. So I'm actually very critical of, I have to say, of the, the idea of the social pillar um, and, uh, and the social dimension of, of EMU because we, we are over-premising and we cannot deliver. Now, I think there's one area where the, where the EU actually has a very strong power, and that's its regulatory, uh, regulatory power. And I really think that's the area where the EU needs to, needs to act. And what, what do I mean with regulatory power? Well, one dimension is, of course, and someone alluded already to the posted workers directive. I mean, we do have regulatory power on certain uh, standards that need to be implemented and need to be upheld uh, when services um, and goods and so, and so on are provided across borders. Take trade policy. I mean, the EU has a strong trade policy agenda and can actually set global standards uh, in negotiations with its partners. And I found it, frankly speaking, a scandal that uh, the European Commission has, has given away um, uh, the power on, uh, on, the, on CETA, so on the uh, Canadian um, uh, free trade agreement, which in many respects has set a lot of you know, high standards on a number of dimensions, but because of a member state pressure, this is now being given to the member states. And if we don't get that through at the member state level, I mean, the normative and regulatory power of the European Commission and the EU is gone in trade policy. I mean, let's, let's, not, let's not fool ourselves here. So, so I, I do think really where we can act as, uh, on the European level, it is exactly on those normative and regulatory issues, while setting goals without being able to deliver uh, is not going to work. And of course, then, you know, uh, the best world may be in some dimensions um, uh, to, to add sort of a fiscal dimension at the European level. And we've had that discussion on, you know, does monetary union need a, a European unemployment reinsurance? Um, I think at some stage we will need something of that sort. Um, but it's, of course, a very, very big debate. And it's a, a, a debate that is, as, as, as all of us know, is not really advancing. Okay, let me uh, let me open uh, let me open the floor uh, for questions, comments, um, um, and and remarks. Uh, Dalia. I wanted to comment on Andre the two issues that you have been saying: the external and the internal. Um, Globalization technology on the one hand and EU enlargement on the other. And monetary union. And monetary union. Okay, so the two, actually, when you look at Austria, which is maybe the country that was most affected by EU enlargement, you see that Austria is the biggest, when you look at the polls, Austria is the biggest opponent of TTIP and CETA. And actually, it's right. not by coincidence that the Chancellor of Austria was the big initiator against the CETA agreement. Now, the reason is that the EU enlargement was a globalization shock for Austria of a dimension nobody talked about. So it basically happened. And at the same time, I think there were there were much too little, it was much too little done 
to compensate the losers. And, and therefore, you have now the situation that the Austrians are they against migration, against TTIP, against everything, you see. Uh, so I think the two are actually connected. Collect more questions, remarks? Okay, so this was, uh, please, yes. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Jutaro Kaneko, Bank of Japan. Inspired by Mr. Sapir's uh, presentation, I just want to share my personal experience on the instrument to facilitate inclusive growth. I used to be director for international cooperation uh, of the Japanese Financial Services Agency, and I was responsible for promote, uh, uh, enhancing uh, cooperative relationship with other Asian countries. Uh, back then, there was growing needs uh, <coughs> to share the knowledge and expertise on how to promote SME financing in developing countries in Asia. And I, uh, I contributed to, to the demand. And uh, given the harmonized regulatory system in the EU, I believe that there is greater room uh, for you uh, to facilitate inclu inclusive growth through uh, technical cooperation or technical uh, assistance among the member states. Thank you very much. Okay, if there are no further questions, I would uh, get back to my panelists and get each of you to, uh, to reply for one minute and perhaps starting in reverse order with André because I know you have to leave also um, and get each other to react to you also to, uh, to each other. Okay, I'll just be very brief. Uh, I mean, I fully agree with uh, you, Dalia. Um, that, that's what I said. I mean, there are two separate but they are extremely interconnected, the two. And I think we are in danger in the EU that if we are not handling one well, we are losing, we are losing both. Uh, and I think, I mean, for instance, I think that it's a, it's a very good point uh, that I fully agree. Uh, makes no difference in a sense. The single market and single market enlargement and globalization uh, is basically the same thing for those who are the losers doesn't matter whether you call it globalization or you call it single market and it's the same thing and maybe they one uh, they take for the other doesn't make it's it's a shock and it's a competitive shock and it's a competitive shock that has been hard especially in the in the manufacturing uh, sector uh, i mean also we saw with the with brexit uh, it's in manufacturing heartland whatever is re remains of a uh, manufacturing heartland in the UK, which is not so much, but it's there really, sort of the blue color uh, areas uh, that voted uh, to, uh, to, to leave the, 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 the EU. I think this is where there is disenchantment. And it's true that the EU uh, is viewed as promoting, in a sense, all the pressure of globalization rather than defend us uh, against uh, globalization. And so for those who feel that they are the lose of globalization, they also feel that the EU uh, is on the wrong side. For those, probably most people in this room, who feel that globalization is great, is giving us more opportunities, uh, then also we see the EU uh, is being great as giving us more opportunities. So they're extremely complementary. 
And that's why I said it's, it's extremely dangerous, because in no case, if you're not dealing with one, you're getting anyway the, the problems on the, on the other side. They are very intertwined. I fully, fully agree. Um, yes, I can only, uh, just to uh, put together what has been said and also reacting to uh, um, uh, Professor Sapira, the, um, I can only agree that the uh, uh, enlargement uh, ap appears to me to have happened without the uh, necessary first consolidation of the monetary union. And now we are a bit stuck in a situation where there is um, some difficulty in advancing, for example, on social issues. You can look at what happened on the maternity leave directive and the very um, different uh, uh, stances of the various member states due to a different level of advancement in terms of developing also a national welfare state. If you look at uh, Sweden compared to Romania. So uh, there is, in my opinion, a need for uh, also a monetary union advancement in this sense. Uh, and I see at the same time, it has men was mentioned by uh, our moderator Guntram Wolf, that there is a risk of, uh, of uh, again, that the social pillar is another Europe 2020 in the sense that you put a lot of, uh, of, uh, of expectation and we don't reach uh, results. I think we need to be uh, bold in our proposals, but I'm also, I'm a politician, not a theoretician, so I want to be realistic. We need a new compromise. As I said, we probably need to look at the rules, uh, try to find new compromises that can include fiscal consolidation and uh, um, choices that can reassure uh, the, um, all, uh, all the different um, countries. But also, I think we are at a very uh, turning point in the sense that uh, in my opinion, the choice of the common currency is also a choice of destiny. And so especially the countries that have the common currency inside the European Union have to build something more um, in the sense of uh, the uh, economic and social uh, integration. Otherwise, I don't see a future. I say that from a political point of view to the monetary union. I don't see a future to the uh, process of integration. I don't see a future for further enlargement of EU, which I support, but not with the present institutional system. I am a strong believer of the differentiation as an instrument to also pursue the right enlargement, for example, in the Western Balkans. The present European Union is a giant with uh, uh, the difficulty to move. It needs to differentiate, uh, especially around the European Monetary Union. So the last uh, consideration I can make is that, uh, in general, the institutional framework we have, it looks to me unable to guarantee, with the new situation we have, um, a, a pursue from the politicians of a medium-term uh, common interest instead of short-term electoral interests. I think that especially if we talk about social uh, issues and inclusive uh, uh, growth, for example, we need to be uh, more able at European level. This is a strong priority from the European Parliament uh, across the political groups 
to fight tax evasion and uh, in, in instruments of avoiding the right, fair share of contribution to the uh, revenue. You know of, of each member state, you know about the uh, uh, Apple case, but uh, that's not the only thing. You know what's happening with the, in the parliament with the inquiry committees from the Panama Papers to the new issues from other islands, so things are in this sense are uh, are on the spotlight. I think we need to understand if we have the instruments to deal with this uh, globalization issue, such as the uh, freedom of, of, of uh, capital to move uh, that uh, has never been, in my opinion, reflected enough in the sense of what this freedom of movement of the capital can um, generate in terms of risks uh, to the uh, fiscal uh, capacities of, of the member states. Well, uh, let me say that I feel um, very sympathetic with uh, what you said about uh, the regulator regulatory power of, of the EU. And, and I think that when, when we talk about um, uh, social Europe and, and how to move forward, um, the debate is, is too much on uh, the targets, on the open method of coordination, of the social coordination, uh, on how to, um, um, to use um, social monitoring in the European semester, which is all, this is important, but I think that we, we, we are too much focused, we, the social, the social people, we are too much focused on that, uh, whereas the, the, the interesting debates, um, it's about posting. This was a very interesting debate, and this is social rights. Um, the social rights of migrant workers um, with the debate um, related to the Brexit, um, how to think about um, this very big social acquis, how to think about that. And, and, and so I, you mentioned the, the, European, the, the unemployment uh, reinsurance, and I agree. This, um, in the future, but I think in the far future, um, we, will, we will need it um, and we will start to implement it, but I don't see how it could be, how it could be implemented um, in, in the near future. And so I think that, that thinking about social rights um, is very important. And so in a sense, I'm less critical on the, on the, on the social pillar of social rights. Um, um, it's, it's, it's right, there is a danger that it becomes a new EU 2020 um, strategy or Lisbon strategy. Uh, there is a danger. Um, but I think this, the, the social rights is the point to start. Um, and, 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 but but this, this means that a shift in, 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 the, in the debate and a shift in, in, in the issues we are, we are dealing with. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm less, um, I'm less um, critical. critical, however, there is a danger. Thank you very much. That was a very interesting discussion. I also know now why I'm invited, because I have to, after all, defend the framework as much as I can. Uh, no, but I'm very pleased to be here, so thanks for the invitation. But uh, uh, so let me start by saying that uh, I think uh, André, uh, even though he has left, he has put together, I mean, 
good uh, overview of the challenges. I think I would add aging uh, in terms of additional challenge that puts uh, pressure on the welfare system, but otherwise I agree with those challenges. Um, there was quite some uh, skepticism about the targets. Um, uh, and I have to say that, um, let's say, apart from the fact that of the five groups of targets, we are on track to uh, reach probably the energy, the education, um, maybe now the employment, possibly not quite, but still possible the R&D. So what is left of the one we might not reach is poverty, and that's very serious. And if you uh, look at the speech of uh, or the speeches of the president and how uh, we act, it's that we take it very serious. So at some point there could have been a question, or there was a question maybe, okay, so because of the crisis and because of the changes, this now looks as a very ambitious target. So then maybe there was the option also to say, let's just give it up and let's just say, uh, let's keep the poverty level where they are. And I'm sure we would have had a lot of criticism. Ah, so you set out to reach all these targets, now you give it up. So it is true that it may be not possible to reach the poverty target, but at least we are, you know, realizing where we are, we are complaining about it, and we are trying to see what can be done, both at the national level in the frameworks that we have and in other contexts. So uh, I would say um, maybe they are not so bad as an anchor, and then it cannot be all. In terms of the European semester, I think I already made my point, so I should maybe not go all too much into the detail again, except for saying, yes, there's, for instance, also in the tax sphere, we have some um, um, uh, CSRs, for instance, when it comes to the tax wedge or when it comes to uh, evasion even. Um, a point that I didn't make uh, so much is that, uh, after all, in the new financial framework now, the ESF is packed to the CSRs. In other words, there is a willingness that the Commission puts the money where um, the challenges are in terms of push, pushing forward there where we think member states have to move. And there are also some ex-ante conditionalities in terms of an anti-poverty strategy that you need before you actually get the money. Or there, um, let's say, um, there's some um, ring fencing of at least 20% uh, in the ESF that goes to inclusion policies. Um, now, uh, as I said earlier, we don't think we can be just satisfied with that. Besides all our efforts to, uh, you know, invite and push member states, we are trying uh, more. And for instance, the youth guarantee came with extra funding. And uh, the president has just, in his State of the Union address, announced how important it is to do more for the young and in order to extend that. And when I participate, for instance, in reviews on the youth guarantee, these are highly uh, also technical discussions, how we actually do it, what is the quality, is this really a quality offer that the youth gets, and I think we can uh, do better that, how do services cooperate, and so I, I, I think it should not be underestimated that in some member states even the fact that they have to deliver youth guarantee and only get the money if they do certain active labor market policies, changes the way even uh, some of the public employment uh, services work. So then um, 
coming back to the social pillar, or let's say, first of all, the point in terms of raising expectations. Yes, I think we, we are aware that, uh, especially the word of pillar of social rights, the word rights, in the consultations we are doing, uh, we have received some responses. Rights raises a lot of expectations. Maybe it is not the perfect word, maybe it will remain the word, but as I say, we're still in the consultation process. But um, you mentioned the regulatory, uh, uh, you mentioned earlier the need for uh, also policies, policy indicators, more policy indicators. I would like to come back to what I said earlier. Maybe these 20 principles or possibly more of the social pillar will be implemented in different ways. In some areas, we will say, okay, we have looked at the acquis, we would like to change uh, the way it is regulated now, and we need, of course, the support of member states in the end. And in other areas, we are reviewing policies, and we are already working on the benchmarking, where we, uh, for instance, reviewing policies, say we know it is not in our competence, but we have seen this works well, that doesn't work well. So uh, uh, let me stop uh, there. Yes, thanks. Thank you very much uh, to all of you. Thank you to all the panelists. And please join me in thanking the panelists and all the participants for the great discussion. Today.